Warning, Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam contains mature subject matter. This is Burning Bridges with Uncle Sam, and I want you to get vaccinated when it's your turn. Actually, I don't even give a shit if it's your turn. Just get vaccinated. I won't tell nobody. Y'all remember Mrs. Garrett? What about Kit? Mallory's boyfriend, Nick? Well, I sure as hell do. I was a TV kid. I mean, don't get me wrong. I played outside until the sun went down. And while I was never much of an athlete, I played a lot of sports and I enjoyed them. But man, I always loved TV, especially sitcoms. Life is hard. Life is short. Watch what you like. Listen to what you like. And if you're listening to this pod, it just means you've got good taste. Deep love of your country. Of course, that you're extremely good looking. What was I talking about? TV. I love different strokes. I love family ties. I really love the facts of life. Tootie, man. I remember my dad getting mad at me once because I wanted to stay home and watch the Dukes of Hazard instead of going to a rodeo. Now, look, I'm not a cowboy. My accent usually only thickens up when I've smoked a little weed or spent some time at home. I was never much of a hunter outside of my backyard with my pellet gun, and while I like to fish, I don't do it a lot. I went to city schools, and I'm not much use on a farm. I like old country music, but I prefer rap and rock and roll. I guess what I'm saying is I always considered myself redneck adjacent, and I suppose there were times when I wished I was a little more country. But that story about the Duke boys and the rodeo is real, and I guess that's not nothing. And yeah, that flag in that show is offensive as hell, but I didn't know that when I was growing up, and it was actually a pretty common sight. I'm 43. I'll be 44 in April. I've got dad bod, dad jokes, and no kids that I know of. And it just blows my mind that I grew up where I did and when I did with the notion firmly implanted in my head that racism was a defeated relic of the past. I guess that's how it was taught. And then you add in black and white photography, and it was easy for a white kid with a pretty easy life to assume that chapter was forever closed. And the thing about being a TV kid, and I imagine comic book kids go through this too, I think you get this warped sense of justice. Like you start to think justice is a real thing. You know, somebody's got to save Dudley from that creep's bicycle shop, right? The first part of the TV show, you know, is somebody doing something really bad, and it ends with somebody else stepping up to save the day and right the wrongs. So you start to see yourself as one of these good guys. (laughs) So I took this sense of justice, this misguided sense of duty, a rail-thin, almost sickly prepubescent frame and a big fucking mouth, and I went tilting at windmills. Except in middle school, as I quickly and repeatedly learned, windmills punch back. And it hurts. It's embarrassing. And it sure as fuck isn't like it is on TV. I guess the lesson I should have learned is that you got to go out and get yourself some more muscles, and then you can talk all the shit you want to. I cut in and talk about politics for, here for a minute, but I think Washington works the same way. If you're as sick and fucking tired as I am of talking about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, then I hope you've already invested in a state with a contested Senate race in two years. It's never too early to start. Just like that scrawny, smart-ass kid should have done, we got to get ourselves some more muscles, and then we won't have to play so many stupid goddamn games. I never went and got those muscles, though. Truth is, I turned into kind of an insecure bully. I used my sharp tongue to get laughs at the expense of others. I was in my early 30s when I realized what a fucking asshole I'd been. I was angry for my parents' divorce, and I made other people miserable with my insults and pranks, and I feel fucking terrible about it. I've thought about it a lot. i reached out where I can to apologize. But we both know that doesn't change what happened, and that's mine to live with. If you're a kid and you're listening to this podcast, well, you sure as hell shouldn't be. You'll be a kid and deal with issues like this in a few years. But if that didn't stop you and you're still listening because you like the cuss words, hear Uncle Sam when he says this. Don't be a bully. Don't be a dick. Look out for people who are different or alone. You'll find one day that you've turned into a good person and you can focus your regrets on missed stock opportunities or suburban life like normal people. Now go play. I've still got the big mouth. I've still got the cruel insults. I just like to think I've got better aim now. I use these meager powers for good instead of evil, taking out that fury on dirtbag politicians. Or maybe I just learned to take an ass woman, you know, born to be a Democrat. I make jokes like that a lot these days, but the truth is I feel weird saying I'm a Democrat. It still feels like I'm doing something wrong or like I'm some kind of bottom-feeding poser. I'll never forget just before the 2016 presidential election when my neighbor asked me if I wanted a Hillary sign for my front yard. (laughs) I fucking froze. It was a simple question, but I had to think about it because for so long I had prioritized maintaining my objectivity, or at least the perception of objectivity. I took the sign and put it in my yard. It felt good but it also definitely felt weird. And even now, I hesitate when calling myself a Democrat or a progressive. 
I'm happy to be on the team for the most part. It just feels like I need to do more to earn it. I tend to paint with a broad brush, and I don't want y'all to think I speak for all Washington reporters. I was just a grain of sand at the beach, and my experiences are my own, especially the drug and alcohol stuff. Those stories are mine. They're not the whole press corps, and I'm pretty sure I would have had the same issues had I not been in Washington. <laughs> I could say this, though. Having lived in L.A. for a little while now, I'm pretty sure I'd be dead by now if I'd done my wild years out here instead of D.C. Man, people out here aren't fucking around. Having said all that, I do believe my experiences inform my theories about political journalism. Like the one I've got about being on train tracks. I think that's what journalism does for somebody and puts you on a set of train tracks. Keeps you moving forward, keeps you from turning left to right. You can't be detoured. You just keep moving forward to the next story, the next TV hit, the next book, the next job. People used to tell me I was a straight down the middle reporter, and I took pride in that. But when I look back at it, I just I feel like I failed over and over again. I don't know that the truth was in the middle. That's where the game was played. I'm proud of my accomplishments, and I'm damn grateful for the life I've lived and the things I've seen, but can't help but feel like I was just playing that game and that I should have been doing more to hold politicians accountable, that I should have been working hard for the American people instead of being in some damn club with them and their fucking staff members. And I can't help but get mad when I see that game still going. And the stakes are so much higher. I swear I'm not doing this podcast because it's easier than figuring out how to do therapy. I've done plenty of that too, and I highly recommend it. But for four years, I largely stayed quiet, writing for other people and nearly incapacitated by shocked fury. And I've got some shit I want to get off my chest. Plus, I want to talk about lots of other stuff on this show. And to do that, I think y'all should know who I am and where I'm coming from. But maybe we should start calling it the Sam Kicks the Shit Out of Himself show. I know quite a few people who would tune in. Speaking of kicking the shit out of myself, let's shift gears and talk about sports for a second. I am a lifelong University of Kentucky basketball fan. I did not graduate from there. In fact, I failed out of there after one semester at the local community college. I never missed a home game, but I did not make it to many classes. People say that basketball in Kentucky is a religion, and I think that's fair. Because this year I watched Kentuckians abandon their team, and during the Trump years I watched them abandon their religion. It might be a little too harsh. It's going to be hard to go back to Kentucky after that one. <laughs> but you know what else is harsh? Fucking with 18-year-old black kids for taking a stand against inequality and white supremacy. And that's what the UK basketball team did on January 9th, three days after the terrorist attack on the United States Capitol, three days after the goddamn Confederate flag was waved in that sacred building for the first time ever. These young black men, most of them far from home and their families, a strange place, surrounded by strangers, people who wear the name Kentucky on the front of their jersey. They took a knee during the national anthem before playing a game against Florida. I cannot imagine how scary or how much courage it takes to do that in a place like Kentucky when you're that far from home. Or how much scarier it is when a county sheriff and jailer show their disapproval for the protest by recording themselves burning Kentucky gear, you know, because they hate cancel culture. The reaction from a lot of the state was disappointing to the point of embarrassing. My home state has some issues. I love it dearly, but it has some issues. When this happened, it reminded me of a feeling I had back in 2015. Some of y'all might remember Kim Davis. She was the Rowan County clerk who refused to issue any marriage licenses because she didn't want to issue them to gay couples. When a judge told her to do her goddamn job and issue the licenses and she still refused, she went to the clink for five days. As you can imagine, the jail itself became quite a circus. Politicians, including a couple presidential candidates, one recently spotted sneaking into Mexico, showed up so they could get their pictures taken with the bigoted public official who refused to follow the law and refused to do her job. I've been around this kind of shit before. If you cover politics, you're going to be around some unpleasant people who want to discriminate against their fellow Americans. But this was the first time I'd been around it as a reporter at home. And the thing I remember the most was how many UK hats and UK t-shirts and Kentucky basketball jackets there were in the crowd. I remember thinking, oh, when I'm cheering, so are they. I wrote two pieces for two publications from a nearby McDonald's, and then I drove back to Lexington. And the whole way home, I just kept thinking it's a terrible thing to feel ashamed of where you're from. And that's how I felt again when I saw the reaction to the team kneeling back in January. And if I'm honest about it, it's not real easy to be proud of this team. The coach seems to have become obsolete. The whole program's finances are supplemented by GOP megadonors. And the team, I don't mean to be cruel, but they suck. They literally have the worst record for a Kentucky men's basketball team in almost 100 years. The program that has more wins than any other Division I program has a losing season. At home. It's March, but there's no madness for us. But you know what? I still watch every game. 
I'm still cheering them on. And when I'm not cussing turnovers and foul trouble, I'm cheering loud because I'm proud of them. And I'm proud of the Kentuckians who got their backs. There's a lot of them, a lot more than we realize because all we see is Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul. So I was driving through the valley. I blew a tire. I had it up on the jack, changed it when the damn thing gave way and fell on me. Ruby came along. And you know how, like, some people have, like, that, you know, that superhuman mom strength where they can lift a car off their kid? Ruby apparently has that for fucking strangers. And so she, uh, she lifted the car right off me. It was uh, easily the most impressive thing I've ever seen. And as I laid there on the ground bleeding, I said, ma'am, I don't know who you are or where you got your magical car lifting abilities, but I've got this podcast and I'd love for you to help me put it together. And so here she is saving my ass here, just like she did there. What did I tell you about calling me ma'am? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a habit with me that offends some people. And it's uh it's one of those things that when I was a kid, it was it was a it was a positive. But now I uh, now I got to watch that shit. We don't do that shit in L.A. Yeah, I know, I know. How 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 is it if I open doors? Is that okay? I mean, I can uh, I can rip a door off its handles, as you just said, but not right. for myself, for anybody else but myself. Yeah, you're not kidding. Well, I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. You know, when reporters are together, one of the things they talk about is my editor wouldn't let me write this, or I just can't confirm that. But it's just irreconcilable that you can hold somebody to account, but also depend on them talking to you for your job. You know, you, you just, you can't ask questions that are so hard that they don't want to talk to you ever again, but somebody needs to ask those questions. Yeah. I, I actually have an idea. I think news organizations need to implement a designated hitter rule. They need a DH. They need somebody who's not on the beat every day to go to press conferences. You know, just some random stranger from, you know, out in the States and they just show up at a press conference and their only job is to ask the really fucking hard questions that would get most people thrown out of Washington. I feel like you're doing that. You're asking the hard questions, but you're doing it uh, through Twitter and, and DMs. My next guest has been in the trenches fighting the disinformation wars. She's the co-founder of Win Black, one of those organizations that's responsible for our big victories last year. Please welcome Ashley Bryant. Ashley, welcome to Burning Bridges. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so grateful you joined us. You've done such great work. I feel like 81 million votes, you know, there are a lot of chefs that make that meal happen. There, there's definitely a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but I, we are so grateful to be a part of uh, be a part of the meal. I think this was um, this was a hard fought election, I think, you know, not just federally, but local. Um, and we're 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 seeing um, the reward, but we're certainly seeing what it means when uh, we win, they go harder. Um, and so I'm I'm excited to, to dig into what that means. Well, I mean, just as an example of what you're talking about, I, I was I saw recently that just the two uh, the runoff elections in Georgia were the difference of one point three trillion dollars in covid relief. And that ain't nothing. It's not. I mean, you know, it's, you know, folks, there's jokes and memes now, you know, saying that, you know, folks ran on on stimulus checks, but it actually is the truth. I mean, when it comes down to it, winning these additional Senate seats is is a game breaker. Um, and it certainly was enough to get people fired up um, and to show out in, in, a, in a runoff that, Traditionally, and, and if, if you know anything about politics, to get people to show up again, especially uh, in a pandemic, especially over after the holidays, um, you know, this is no small feat. Um, and, and from the folks on the ground, from all of the national organizations, but quite honestly, the win, the, this win goes into the box of the people, of the, of the voters. I, I think we all just sort of assumed, you know, deep down, oh gosh, we'll try, but, you know, we don't do that well in runoff elections. And then we won. How? What do we do? What do yeah. we do right? You know, I got to be honest. I think when, when it, it, it had there been some other states, I, I might have um, shared in some of that fear. But I, I have to be honest that Georgia is a state that couldn't have been in better hands. I mean, when we when we think about uh, Stacey and, and Fair yeah. Fight, when we think about Latasha and Black Voters Matter, we think about NSA and New Georgia Project, and then that's just a snippet. Um, I mean, we we I could name twenty other organizations, right? Who it hasn't been the last two years, four years, even ten years. Uh, you know, Stacey has been 
fighting tirelessly in Georgia. You know, Georgia Project has been around and, and little by little transforming what Georgia looks like and why it actually turned blue. And so quite honestly, if, if folks have been paying attention to, to chipping at this iceberg over the last decade in Georgia specifically, um, you know that even the voters are really seeing you know, what happened. And in this pandemic, while people joke that some of the Southern states have been open, but you know, there's folks that are losing jobs. They they've lost their health care. They've lost their lives. Um, and folks of of that are not of privilege see it every day. And people that are of privilege thought that they um were turning a blind eye to what was actually happening all around them. And and that bit them in the ass. Well I think you're right. I mean you don't ever see legislation that polls at 76% approval cutting across, you know, party lines. But that's where we are with COVID relief. Absolutely. Ruby was talking about George earlier. Ruby Yeah, I'm just um I'm confused or not confused, just clarification on like what the Republicans did wrong there, basically. They're also trying to reach, you know, the minority vote. What did they do incorrectly that we learned? And what have we learned from the Georgia election? Have you have y'all seen Trump and McConnell going at each other over yeah. this in the it's, last few oh days? Gosh. It's it's, it's just, hilarious to me. <laughs> the, the parody continues, my God. Yeah. Um you know, there, there's a lot that that the that the right is doing wrong, and 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 really, it's counting out minority voters. It's counting out black voters. I mean, we can talk about like right now, you know, voter suppression is a watered down term, right? Like at this point, it is blatantly clear that instead of working with black and brown communities, they rather just not see us participate, and so they don't want to talk to us. They don't want to think about policies or legislation that could at least meet black and brown communities in the middle. They just want to say, you know what, if we knock them out, if we knock them out of the box, we win. So let's just focus on that. Right. And so, you know, I think where, you know, when people think about, you know, some of the things that Loeffler and some other candidates were trying to pander to to black and brown communities. We're smarter than that. Yeah. <laughs> we're smarter than that. Yes. And and I think that again, you know, because they don't see it, they didn't realize that our what our communities are actually experiencing, what we've experienced in this pandemic. It's it's loss of life. There is nothing greater than that, right? And and it's very clear why that's happening. It's clear why crime is up, not just in black and brown communities. In the United States, it's up because people don't have jobs, they don't have food, they cannot take care of their families, right? And these are things that the average American is experiencing, and it's not hard to point the finger at why that is. Um, and so, you know, what they're doing wrong is trying to count us out. They they want to sidestep our communities instead of working with us. And you know, we're we're gonna keep we're gonna keep meeting them in the ring and beating them every time. I mean, what's crazy is you've got this dynamic where they just did better with black male voters than they've ever done. And then they spent two months trying to throw out millions of black votes. It's like, you know, you, you were making a little bit of progress and then you went and reminded the whole world what racist assholes you are. Well, and it's also, you know, I think where we have the upper hand and this is really where, you know, when black came in, because, you know, black and brown voters were not monolithic. We can't talk. We can't use one message to reach every black American. That's not that's not <laughs> that's not who we are. And unfortunately, the GOP does look at all black people to be the same, to do the same, to think the same, to walk the same. Um, and that's not effective. And so, you know, what you see is, you know, we've done the extensive research to really understand where black Americans, where brown Americans, where what what's impactful to us, who are what are our profiles Um, what's you know, where. Where are we playing? Who are we talking to? What are the critical issues that matter to us and in the different states and cities and all of those things? And that's not the GOP playbook. They just they you know, it's just the term black voter. And, that, and that's it. And they think that yeah. one message is going to resonate with a whole entire community. And that's just not the case. We've seen 250 pieces of legislation introduced since the election that would racially suppress the vote. We've got as of this week, we're recording this week, we've got the John Lewis Act has passed the House. How worried are you that the Senate is not going to do what needs to be done and that come 2022, 2024, we're just sitting ducks? I'm always worried. 
Um, the, the Senate is always the stopgap. I mean, this is why the runoff was so important. This is why Senate majority is so important. But what's unfortunate is that even with majority, we still have a challenge because we have to deal with the filibuster. And we even have Democrats like Joe Manchin who um, are still stark supporters of it, right? And so even with Senate majority, we still have an uphill battle um, for many pieces of legislation that should just be landslides, right, for what this country has gone through and wanting to put us on the right path to recover from this, not just from, um, you know, from human rights to an economical standpoint. I mean, there's so many things that um, a warm-blooded human being should want to do for the people that they represent. And unfortunately, we don't have a Senate that has the makeup that represents, um, you know, 80 percent of this <laughs> this country. Um, and so I'm I'm very worried. I, I'm worried from a Democratic standpoint. You know, I am. I am very excited about this administration. I think we have a compassionate administration. I think we have a leadership like no, none other. When we think about Vice President Kamala Harris, I can't think about someone who is more suited um, to put forth legislation that is truly representative of, of communities of color. Um, but the Democratic Party has a long way to go. Um, there were a lot of missteps in in the last four years from from the Democrats, right? This isn't this isn't the Democrats don't get to just put on the white hat and 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 save the day. There's there's a lot of work that has to be done um, in in the progressive movement and the party itself. Well, that's I, I really hope that, and I, I believe they are that Democrat official Democrats are paying attention to the returns that Donald Trump got, because those are some troubling trend lines. I feel like, though, even though there's 250 pieces of legislation, it's not really being talked about right now. It's not in the forefront of news. There's so many other, you know, distressing things going on with the pandemic. Um, do you think people are aware of, and also these these suppression laws are so convoluted and, and looking for every loophole possible. Do you think people are aware of what's going on, ba basically? And how do you make them more aware um, to these pieces of legislation? Well, <laughs> you know, if you're sitting at home and haven't worked in the last nine months, if you are taking care of two children and trying to educate them virtually and still trying to locate a job, you may have a pre-existing condition. And, you know, I'm here in, in, in D.C., and getting a vaccine, I think I'll get a million dollars first. Um, and so, you know, I, I got to be honest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's 250 pieces of legislation. But if I can't figure out what's going to happen to me and my family tomorrow, no, I'm, I don't give a damn. Yeah. Right. Because that how can my brain even stretch that far? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, when we think about, you know, I, I consider myself a political strategist. Right. Um, and and I think we can't strategy our way out of this. <laughs> right. Like we we have to do what needs to be done for the American people. And it and it has to be swift. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that, that, you know, that's really the answer. I mean, yes, there's been some incredible legislation that's that's been on the on the forefront, some questionable. Um, but I also think that until there's proper relief, until we get this vaccination rollout in place, there's a lot of shit that's just not even worth talking about to a so lot of true. families. And by a lot, I, I mean probably Most. 70 to 80 percent of this country. So yeah. You yeah. know. I mean I know my sister, she's got three kids at home all day every day. And the idea of talking about politics to her these days, she's like, seriously, who's, who's got time for that shit? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's a really good time to pass voter suppression legislation because no one's paying attention right now. Yeah, actually... but I tell you, and this is what I hope. I hope they've gone too far mm. because they're not even hiding what they're trying to do anymore. Yeah. They're admitting it to the Supreme Court. They're cutting things like souls to the polls. They're, you know, they're trying to outlaw bringing people food and drinks while they're standing in line at, at the polls. How is now that... tell me how the hell exactly. that bolsters your case against fraud. Yeah, I mean, it, and I keep thinking, oh, they're going to go too far. And then I remember they're the same assholes who just attacked the U.S. Capitol and mostly got away with it. And I think, well, maybe they can't. You know, I, I, it seems like, though, a lot. Of, I'm sorry. please. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that's the right question. I mean, you know, it's it's difficult. Right. Especially as a as a as a black person. Like I I think it's tough for us to not still be talking about 
um, the insurrection, right? Like, I think of this as, and I know that it is no way apples to apples, right? But I, I think that it's 2021 and we still get a shot in the chest to think about 9-11 or to think about any type of terrorism, right? And to see it happen on our own soil and to see it be swept under the rug by our own government is insane. And I think in, in, in the other ways, what I think that, you know, our Congress and, and Senate needs to pay attention to is actually what that's going to do. Right. Because you think about, you know, we're, we're kind of used to how far uh, the right will go to suppress us, to silence us, to kill us. Right. Um, and I think but to see the blatant um, almost disregard. Right. It almost disregard is to me, that's the scarier part of. If, if these folks can literally storm our capital and many of, the, of them white folks and not, um, you know, it's great to be arrested. So what, what does that mean? Um, and not actually be convicted. We're not, we don't see legislation or different things on the floor. We saw people defend Donald Trump um, as the main insider for this. Um, and now here we are, it's March 4th. And people bar barely talk about it. It's not even a thing. We've all moved on, you know, literally. Like, it's not even a thing. Now, okay, look over here. So to me, I'd rather be talking about what is, what is that going to do? What is that going to do to to voters and, and, and how they are valued, especially voters of color? What does that do to us as we look ahead to other, um, other you know, civic participation? I think one of the reasons our side isn't moving on one of the images that just burned in my brain that day is the Confederate flag being waved in our capital. It didn't happen during the Civil War. It had never happened. And it happened that day. Yeah, I, I hope people are paying attention. Oh, and I think sure. they are to that. I feel like a lot of people, you were sort of at the forefront of this effort to fight back against disinformation, uh, targeting the black community. I, I feel like it seems like other people are starting to join you in that. I, I just saw recently that LeBron James is starting to pick up that effort. Do you feel like maybe Republicans fucked up here? Did they did they wake up a sleeping giant? For sure. <laughs> right. Like, I, you know, I think and, and I talk a little bit, you know, Andre and I always talk about the impetus for when Black Palante. And that essentially was, you know, we came out of 2016, you get this Senate report that in, you know, over thousands of words, blatantly talks about disinformation, misinformation, Russian interference, um, blatantly on paper, given to the, you know, prepared by the Senate Intelligence Committee. Right. Uh, and nothing yeah. happened. Uh, the Democratic Party didn't all of a sudden have a disinformation team or agency that was built out of that. Um, the administration didn't, di you know, they pretty much closed the digital office, let alone wanting to monitor uh, disinformation. And so for us, it was really important to create a model that really kept a pulse on this as we looked ahead to 2020 and not just monitoring because a lot of organizations who are doing amazing work, but it's very much rooted in the research and not actual mm. counterattacks, right? How are we countering these narratives? And that was really the sweet spot for us was to really use our creative studio, our model, um, and to be able to build the messages, both verbally, visually, that we knew were actually going to excite and mobilize black and brown voters. And a part of that was building the right network and the right partnerships. You know, we partnered with More Than a Vote, which was, mm -hmm. uh, which is LeBron's agency um, or voter program, I should say, and really worked with them using our rapid test, rapid message tests and built some really, um, some really dope content that was able to, you know, show people that this disinformation is out there. This is what it looks like. And this is how we fight back. And we fight back by staying engaged. We fight back by showing up. Um, and we fight back by dispelling what we uh, see to be false. And so I think it's really important. You know, there's a lot of organizations and I welcome each and every one of them, <laughs> right? If every celebrity started an organization to, to counter disinfo please hello i will help you right there there's enough space for for all of us so yeah i think i think 
you know, the sleeping giant has been awakened. And, and I think that not just new organizations, but I think now you're seeing some of the larger progressive organizations really have a line item and start to resource. What does it look like to have an always on initiative to really look at disinformation as a part of our traditional organizing, right? Like this is actually the thread of what's attacking our communities. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's almost in the, in the same sense of a, a public health crisis. When we think about the implications on uh, the lack of accountability, when it comes to big tech, when it comes to these platforms um, and the information that it can spread, that is, is quite dangerous. So yeah, I mean, pe- people are, people are woke and they see it. Um, and you're going to see more folks that are jumping in to do this work and do it well. I hear all the time, like, what are, you know, Twitter and Facebook not doing certain things, but what more in your mind, besides, you know, kicking off Donald Trump about three and a half years too late, like what more can they be doing right now? And how big does the solution need to be? I guess kicking off the president's pretty big, but again, probably too late. Definitely too late. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's a tricky conversation because when we think about, especially this generation, social media for, for the, this, you know, youth is so much of their identity, right? It is literally how they grew up, you know, for, for folks that are in my age demographic, it's not as ingrained because it was new. It was like a thing that happened when we were in college and it's like, oh, this is new, you know? And so it's not as ingrained, but this generation, it is literally their DNA. Ruby's laughing because I'm older than that. (laughs) Sam is. (laughs) Well, you see, I just said my age demographic. I wasn't about to say my age, (laughs) but but no, but it's, it's literally like their DNA. And so when we think about folks are quick to go, well, what legislation do we need or what, how does the government step in? But for this generation and a lot of folks, it feels like the government touching something that is a part of you. Right. And so there's a knee jolt reaction in that. And so it's, it's certainly easy to focus on, yes, the government needs to step in and we, you know, we need to figure out like what's, what's the restrictions and what's the legislation, which I certainly think that's a part of it in, in so many ways. But I actually think this is more of a transformational shift in, in thinking from users and from the public. I, you know, I talked about, you know, correlating this to the impact that things like disinformation does, you know, how does this translate to the real world? How do these platforms allow for a governor to, to, to potentially be kidnapped and murdered, Mm. right? And how does the insurrection come about uh, all on these platforms and somehow it still happens when our intelligence committees knew very well, um, you know, literal screenshots and transcripts from these things being organized on these channels and nothing done to stop them. And so I think when, when we can shorten the gap between it's all fun and games until it ain't (laughs) when we can shorten that gap in people's minds. I think it's more about focusing on the public and starting to transform how we're thinking about what this impact is. It's not just showing cute pictures, but what can actually be done that can impact you in your everyday life. I think that's the conversation that's more important to find the solution versus just quickly saying, let's get the government involved and figure out how do we legislate these platforms. I'm so glad you brought up the Michigan governor almost being kidnapped and killed. I have spent the last few months wondering if I'm losing my goddamn mind because nobody else is freaking out about this. Am I am I am I wrong or have we like not paid nearly enough attention it's to insane. that? We're so desensitized of everything. The Senate Republican leader there is hanging out with domestic terrorists. They're like buddies. Yeah. And we're, and we're just like, oh, yeah, but we got other stuff we got to talk about. I literally forgot that happened, to be oh, honest. To, just to be completely honest, yeah. I forgot well, that happened. I think most people have. For sure. It wasn't even a big enough story. And I hate to even say story because it, it's it's really a, like, you know, crazy event. Yeah. But. Yeah. It wasn't even a big enough story in the media. I mean, I, uh, you know, our work at, at AB, we have done some work with Ultraviolet and the Women's mm-hmm. Defense League uh, in uh, in 2020. And, you know, Ultraviolet is all about, um, you know, gender equity and making sure and like protecting women, especially in the media and making sure that media are treating uh, women equitable. Um, and, you know, I, I think about the work of Shauna Thomas uh, with Ultraviolet when that all happened, where it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, like this woman 
potentially could have lost her life. And the way that folks are talking about this as if it's five pages down on CNN was insane. Right. And and I think that really shows where we are in, in our country, both from a media standpoint, but also we're desensitized in a lot of ways, which is incredibly sad. It's sad and it's scary how quickly we can move on from, you know, the most like the most insane happenings um, that should should like make everyone stop and pause and almost like have grief counseling. <laughs> and instead, yes. we're like back on Zoom in an hour. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell you, I think there's another factor. This country treats women like shit. Hello. Because I tell you what. Well, we can really talk. I told you I have my wine here. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are. We can really talk. But I mean, I'm telling you, know, if the, if they had tried to kidnap the governor of Texas, do you think it's such a small story? Mm, Hell absolutely no. not. It's all Fox is talking about. Absolutely not. No. So what's next for you? What are you What are you worried about? What are you doing? 2022 will be here before you know it. 2024 will be here before you know it. Yeah. What's next for you? I mean, we are excited about this year. I think you know, when Black. Uh, was, you know, really impactful, you know, a successful campaign. I think the network that we built with grassroots organization across, organizations across the country, the partnerships, the creators we were able to amplify and, and bring their independent voices into um, this, this space uh, was really incredible for us. And I think what we're looking ahead for this year and beyond is what we've really identified as a gap. You know, even doing our work, we were able to flood the airwaves with, you know, this, this, um, tested content that, that we spent so much time and effort into making sure that we were, we were getting it right. But when it came to really getting those out into, you know, from paid media amplification to TV, et cetera, when you're matching that with, with voter files and with different, you know, paid media efforts, you really start to recognize how, how shitty of a database of, uh, black voters <laughs> that there are, to be quite honest. Uh, um, and so, you know, one of our focuses. That's so encouraging. For sure. So, you know, one of our focuses is. is what year is it? Oh, my gosh. I don't oh, like it's it's goodness. insane to even say that, quite honestly. But here we are. Uh, I'm laughing to keep from crying. Yeah. And so we're we're super excited to like there's this sweet spot right now where, you know, last year was all about this individual activism. And, and for when black for us, it was like uplifting that. We wanted upbeat, we wanted energy, we wanted the feeling of the movement, right? We didn't want this doom and gloom, everything is, you know, red copy and and the sirens on your emails, right? But we wanted to really tap into the feeling of the movement. And I think it's important right now to sustain those folks, right? We have to sustain people. And now more than ever, people understand that like the federal elections have nothing on what we can do at a local and state level. And so we're really going to be focused on, you know, we have Louisiana congressional district right now with Karen Carter-Peterson. We have, um, you know, just coming off of the mayoral primary in St. Louis with Tashara Jones. Um, And there's so many local races, whether it's mayors, DAs, in major metropolitan cities, and even in, um, you know, some some secondary cities. And we're really going to be focused on reaching and engaging those voters, making sure that they are educated around why these local and state races matter. And also, you know, we're not handing people the tools. What we're doing is actually amping, amping up what they're already doing in their communities. And we really want to continue this engagement to make sure that like we're tightening uh, the black voter database, whether it's used for, you know, the voter file, whether it's used for how are we, how are we actually reaching black voters online? We want to make sure that we're doing that work so that in 2022, we can unleash Right. We can unleash. We know where they we know where we are. We know where we're playing. And we actually have an updated universe um, to reach black voters in a, in a, a really impactful way. And so that's really our focus is, is shifting. You know, we went from this large national program, which is still a part of our strategy. But we're really looking at the local and state level this year and, and getting even deeper with the grassroots organizations on the ground that are that are building these communities. I'm so happy to hear you say that. It's I, so I think, dope. Yeah. <laughs> just to hear something like optimistic and and that, that there's <laughs> paths forward. I just hear so much bullshit about, you know, disinformation, voter suppression and like very few solutions. Yeah. And it's amazing. I tell you, my, I think politically my greatest hope is that four years of Donald Trump 
woke Americans up, showed them just how serious this stuff is, just how much you can lose when you put somebody incompetent and self-absorbed in there. My greatest fear is that now that he's gone, people will stop caring. And I really hope that doesn't happen because if that happens, we've got a real chance of losing everything just two years from now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think that there's, there's a couple of things in that because I think I said this early on where it's like, you know, there's a reward for winning and then there's the hard truth. And when I think about nonprofit organizations across the land, you know, the folks that are doing this work. And when you, when you compare that to, or, or, or size that up with philanthropy, sometimes winning in, in philanthropy is uh, it's counter counterproductive because mm. the donors disappear the money disappears because the sense of urgency is not there. You know, it's tongue in cheek and people joke about it, but you know, Oh, all of a sudden racism is cured because Biden's in office, right? Oh, there's, there's no other now we've done it, right? We've, we've got Senate majority. I guess you don't need this hundred thousand dollars to continue your program. I'll come back to you in the midterms. Um, and so for me, the greatest fear is like for in philanthropy, you know, these groups need this money, whether it's grassroots dollars, whether it's from the big donors, but the worst thing that we can do, and, and it happens year after year after year, cycle after cycle, that all of a sudden it's no longer urgent organizations aren't getting the money, especially POC led organizations. And then donors pop up at the very last minute in GOTV, they drop a half a million dollars on you and think that in three months we can make a difference. Right. And so, um, to me, that's, that's one of my fears of not just the voters thinking that it's, it's no longer urgent, but I'm more so concerned about not having the the resources in these communities to continue this organizing that goes well beyond the presidential, um, but actually getting the dollars in into community organizing to continue allowing these communities to thrive year round. Mm -hmm. Um, And really kind of, you know, one thing that we're, we're, talking about it when black is like disappearing the off cycle, right? Like I would love for in 2024, I'm no longer a political strategist that even says the the word off cycle. <laughs> <laughs> like there is no off cycle, right? And like, that's kind of something that we're willing to hang our hats on because we have to transition this thinking that it is always on. Like council races are just as important we shouldn't have to drop $50 million on the presidential if we're incrementally dropping this money in the space on the races that matter every single cycle. Um, so that's that's really important for me. That's the thing. People don't realize how much influence like state legislatures or city councils or county commissions Absolutely. have on their day-to-day lives. Yes. And I don't know what it is about Democrats, but we focus really hard on the presidents. We focus really hard on senators and congresspeople. But we get below that and we just don't seem to give a damn. And then you get state legislatures who are passing things like, well, you can't bring food and drink to people who are standing in line at the polls. It's very important. It's very important to regulate snacks. It's very important. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know. When Michelle Obama did that, they hated her for it. Oh, you know? my gosh. Oh. So in your past, you've been you've done some brand building. And actually, I, I saw that you did Pantene. I'm a Pantene user. So you got me. So there, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like two lives ago now, but yep. Politics is like that, I guess. Uh, it's like, it's, it's like, um, where he said, we'll sell Jack like soap flakes. <laughs> and that was an ode to, to PNG. And that's, that was the, the JFK playbook was we're going to, we're going to market this guy. Like he's soap. That's pretty cool. I did. I've never, I don't think I've ever heard that. Yeah. Of course. I worked at Procter and Gamble. So of course I know. Sure, it. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, soap. Yeah. <laughs> So if we're talking about the Democratic Party as a brand, what do they got to fix? And who do they have to fix it for? Man. <laughs> You're looking at me like, how much time do I have? I know. You know, it's hard because I, and I, I notice and I try and check myself because I, it's not like I'm some secret Democrat. And sometimes I always say like they, they, they. So I'm trying I'm trying to embrace saying <laughs> saying me. I struggle. I struggle but, with that too. I, you know, it's a struggle. But. You know, there is there is a brand problem and and not to diminish the importance of of the party and what that means. But, you know, what what I think is um, very representative is just the people are not at the center. and, And that's what it feels like. And when I say the people, it's very clear to talk about 
you know, what has been considered the Democratic base for decades is not the true base. And to be even clearer than that, looking at, you know, who is the true base are voters of color. Yes. Voters of color have made the difference, whether it be to the right or to the left, have made a critical difference in every election cycle for decades. Um, And I think that the party hasn't caught up, quite frankly, into investing the, the amount of resources that it takes to not just engage communities of color around a presidential, but what does that look like every, like all year round, right? Mm-hmm. What are the candidates that deserve the amplification and the resources that are representative of communities of color? You know, a lot of times when people, especially, you know, the average person, when they think about the party, they don't really understand that the the, the party isn't just about when there's a presidential race. You know, the party is about their state, you know, their state party, their state democratic parties. Like there's a whole coordination effort across the country that the party represents. And there's a lot of nuances to that, right? And in some ways, we're damn lucky that a lot of people don't understand those nuances because when you really want to break down where the party goes wrong, let's talk about state level (laughs) democratic parties, right? Um, And so without going too deep into that, (laughs) I'd say, you know, the, the brand issue from the top down is when you're not putting forth candidates or not equally even considering candidates that are truly meant to represent the base, you're losing folks. Yeah. We're losing voters. And I can easily draw this and, and I'll transparently say that I was a Hillary supporter, but you can you can easily see this but with the Bernie Hillary, mm-hmm. right? Because I think it, it was a hard position to play, but a lot of times the Democratic Party doesn't take the risk. And I hate to say it, but the Republicans jumped on Trump's ass so fast and it was all, it was almost unbelievable because you couldn't you couldn't fathom that they would actually get behind someone as nefarious, as uh, dangerous to our democracy. But when they saw where their voters were going, that's where they went. Yeah. No questions asked. And when he was president. No matter what bullshit he did, they were with him every step of the way. And I have to be honest, that is something that we don't do in the Democratic Party. Right. We're not listening to voters. We're not listening to our communities. We're not going with the wave of our actual base. Um, and that's a brand issue. Yeah. You know, it's a, if we when we break it down, when I worked at Pantene, we actually it's really funny because my last project there was like the rebrand. It was like the reintroduction of, of Pantene. And it was changing the way of thinking about your hair. It wasn't how your hair, uh, how you want your hair to be. It was changing the thinking of, which is now all the products have done this. It's actually like, oh no, I have curly hair. So now I need a curly hair product. But before in the early 2000s and the 90s, it was, I want straight hair. So I buy a straight hair product. And that was all by listening to the insights of how consumers were changing. Consumers were saying, you know what, actually, this is ridiculous. Why would I buy a product for what I want my hair to look like versus how do I cultivate the hair that I have? Right. And the party for so long has been cultivating what they want, (laughs) what they want the Democratic base to look like versus what the fuck it looks like today. (laughs) Right. Like, yes. And or what it looked like in the 60s, (laughs) except for what it looks like right now today in 2021. Sam knows what it looked like in the 60s. Yes. Like until we figure that shit out, uh, we're going to get it wrong every every time. But I, I do think that what we're seeing right now with some of the legislation, I think what we're seeing, you know, we the 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 transition of of, of the makeup of Congress itself is um, exciting. You know, we still have a long way to go, but we've elected a record number of of people of color, elected a, a record number of Black women to Congress, um, and it is refreshing. We've elected people who uh, was a nurse. Right. And it never had political um, political experience. And so I think that there's there's definitely some optimism. But from a from a brand perspective, we have got to become a more people centered party. Yeah. And and right now we have a long way to go. I, I tell you a story. Uh, 
in 2019, just as the, the, you know, the president, Democratic presidential uh, nomination race was heating up, I talked to a friend of mine at the New York Times. There's still one or two people over there still like me. Uh, and I asked him, who's going to win? And he said, assume that black women in the South will decide this race and then work backwards. Mm. And I thought, if he could figure that out, then why the hell can't the DNC? I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it's, it's amazing to me. If he could see it, why has the Democratic Party missed it for so long? Why do they? It's a party that's held up and carried across the finish line time and time again by black women. But it's a party that caters almost entirely to moderate white men. To you. Yeah. Yeah. To people you. like me. Yeah. Except, you know, I'm not I'm not a rust yeah, I mean, guy, so you know, I, know I, I think quite that narrow definition. No, but you know, narrow target they're going yeah. for. We'll give you the benefit of the doubt for this conversation. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I I'll say that. one thing that that um, myself and my colleagues talk about quite often is, you know, you have this like thank black women campaign and. You know, if you've been in political work for, you know, any number of years, you know who have been some key players in the Democratic Party and specifically black women uh, leaders in the Democratic Party. You know, I can easily throw out, you know, Donna Brazile. Um, we think about, um, you know, multiple leaders. Right. And what we're seeing is a shift of before you you would think us behind closed doors. But now you have no choice but to acknowledge Black women leaders that have been putting this democracy on, on their backs. Yeah. Right. And so I think that there is a shift. I think, you know, I don't want to diminish because this work has been done in and around the party by black women for a very long time, a very long time. But unfortunately, from a public perception, that work was not acknowledged. Um, you know, that that work was not seen. Um, and so I, I am really happy about um, this movement. I think, you know, it can only be a movement if there's action behind it. And, you know, some of the things that, you know, I, I think about Kamala and the history uh, making of her becoming our, our, you know, first woman, first black woman, first South Asian vice president. Um, and even that seemed to uh, be hampered down in a sense. Right. Right. And, yeah, and I, mean, I don't know. You know I, I want to say it's the pandemic, but I don't know. Maybe no, it's just ain't no damn pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> you want to yeah. say it's the pandemic. It, yeah. It's the, I mean, pan I mean, the pandemic of yeah. whiteness. It's the pandemic yeah. of okay. not yeah. being able to celebrate um, I, I that think you're right. black history is our history. This is the history of our country. When we when we achieve these things, it is the history of Americans. So, you know, I, I think about, you know, when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, like that, that wasn't a, a white accomplishment. That was an American accomplishment. <laughs> I don't disconnect from that because he's white. Right. Right. You know, I don't disconnect from that. I don't know why that was my damn example. Like I'm 75, but, <laughs> but, but I don't disconnect from that. But for some reason, people disconnect from it. And, and to your earlier point, Sam, and I'm so glad that you said it, but the most hated, and it's, to, I will say a black woman, but a woman period, they, this country treats women like shit. They treat us terribly. And for us to not see, we should still be dancing in the streets for the fact that we have a woman, just bare minimum, a woman vice president. Yeah. And it was so muddled down. And they're going to continue. It's going to be an uphill battle for Kamala. But I think if anybody's up for the task to show you better than I can tell you, it's going to be Kamala. Sure. And I guess that's what I meant. Muddled down is what I meant when I said it's the pandemic. Like there wasn't a traditional yeah. inauguration because, you know, we were still worried about terrorist attacks and, you know, deadly viruses and all kinds of cool shit like that. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So you're in Ohio. I am through and through. You've got a Senate seat opening up. You're from, you're from the Natty, right? I am. Yeah, I'm from not far, not far from there. Uh, actually, I really like Cincinnati. Is it Mount Adam that's so much fun? Yeah, Mount Adams is a yeah. good, it's like right off of downtown. It's a good town. I'm, 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 I miss Ohio, but I go back often. Well, that's good. Uh, I've got to admit, you know, being across the river, we always saw Ohio, Indiana, basically anybody who wasn't Kentucky, we saw as, as rivals. It's, uh, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was just going to let you have that. It's like being in a fight by yourself. <laughs> I mean, we've got some good stuff, but I don't, I mean, we've got good barbecue, but we don't have Skyline Chili. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask, I mean, do we have a chance to win this Ohio Senate seat? <sighs> yeah. Ooh. 
You know, I think that there's an opportunity as many states right now. I think that there's some challenges in Ohio politics. I think Ohio is also shifting in a lot of ways uh, faster than the political structure can can keep up, if I, if I can um, be frank. And so I think that you know, there's some exciting candidates, you know, there's some, some exciting names that have gotten into the race, you know, no matter what, if you don't know Nina Turner by now, right. <laughs> uh, get, get to know her. Um, inc- incredible, incredible leader in Ohio and outside of Ohio. I've really been blown away by the way she's been able to consolidate, not just progressive support, but other people there in that district. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, Nina to me is, is viable anywhere she, she touches, but I, I think that, um, you know, I think that again, Ohio is shifting. The demographics are shifting in surprising areas, right? Like I I think of myself, I've been away from Ohio about, I guess, 11, 12 years now, and the clock is ticking. And I think I'm, I think I'm going to be on my way back soon. And there's a ton of people. It's like the, it's like this folks are returning back to, to where they came from and they've had different experiences. They've, they've seen the world a little bit differently and they bring those experiences back to their hometowns. And that's when you see, you know, some of these traditionally red counties or even traditionally blue counties, you start to see them change because folks are either coming in or they're, or they're leaving. Um, and I think Ohio is certainly in that place where you're starting to see some more traditional, you know, red counties are starting to shift purple and, and vice versa. And so I think it's going to be an interesting race, but to me, it all, it all comes down to the candidate. And I think, I don't care if you're in the most rural district, the most metropolitan district, um, but folks are looking for fresh energy, whether you're on the right or the left, Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we, God, I I can't even say her name, but I'm going to say it, but like seeing Marjorie Taylor Greene get to Congress. I know I can't believe I'm probably going to throw up, but, (laughs) but it's the truth, right? Like it's literally even for GOP, like these, the young GOPers, they're looking for the most like extreme. I, I need you to be saying some crazy shit that jives with what I'm feeling deep inside. Like, and I'm the same with the left, right? Like this, this stale traditional, I'm going to walk the line and not really choose my battles and not really actually talk about the issues that matter most. That stuff is going away. That stuff is it's got to go. And so you're going to like if, if people aren't putting forth these candidates, that's actually walking the walk. Right. And they're they're willing to say, look, I am for this and I am not for that. If you're not ready to draw your line in the sand over these next couple of years, you're not going to be getting you're not going to win these races. It's like the I don't want to say the beauty, but like the the growth and disunity. Yeah. You know, I think about what scares me most even about, you know, this big tech conversation, but it's it's these platforms not allowing for healthy discourse, mm-hmm. right? There has to be some 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 discourse of me seeing opposing views or seeing other communities and seeing what things are impacting, you know, impacting them for us to be able to grow as a country. Like there has to be some disunity for us to become more unified. And so I think if we're not putting forth those types of candidates, it's it's not going to happen. So to answer your question long and short, <laughs> I think that in this Senate race, no matter because it's been this, you know, old white hat, <laughs> I actually think that it, it, it needs to be some fresh energy and somebody that is that is going to directly talk and serve to and protect the people. And I see that person coming out on top. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think voters and I keep saying this, I think voters are feeling their power. Yeah. And I, I compare it to buying a shirt. You know, years ago, when you wanted to buy a shirt, you went to the mall and you picked from the shirts they had. Now, if I want a shirt with my name spelled in sequins that turn, you know, glows yeah. in the dark, I can go online and I can find that shirt. Yeah. The American consumer slash voter, they're not just they're not just going to take what you give them anymore. They know what they want. And candidates matter. I didn't know where that metaphor was going, but it was pretty good. I, yeah, I, I definitely took a deep breath. I was scared. It took me yeah, a while to get I was, there. I had a, I had a flashlight. You brought map. it home. You brought it home. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm just so impressed and actually like feeling hopeful for the state of America. So I'm just going to bask in that for a second because it's a rare feeling for me and just about anyone. Well, then let's definitely stop on that note because, yeah, that doesn't happen too <laughs> it's often. It's the best high I've had in a while. <laughs> awesome. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the work you're doing. We we are grateful. Thank you. This was fun. I'll be I'll be listening for shows to come. Thank you all. This was great. Our show just got a lot smarter. Thanks to you. <laughs> Well, folks, that's all the time we've got for today's show, but I want to thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We'll be releasing all new episodes every Tuesday. This has been a Bunker Crew Media production. It's hosted by Sam Youngman and me, Ruby Frankel. Editing and sound design by Joy Ellett. Special thanks to Don Winning for the kick-ass show art. Homecoming for their cover of Man of Constant Sorrow and Ganga Beats. I love you, you sexy patriots. See you next week.